0: A castle has no secrets, and Catelyn heard her maids repeating tales they heard from the lips of her husband's soldiers. They whispered of Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, deadliest of the seven knights of Ares' King's Guard, and of how their young lord had slain him in single combat. And they told how afterward Ned had carried Sir Arthur's sword back to the beautiful young sister who awaited him in a castle called Starfall on the shores of the Summer Sea. The Lady Ashara Dane, tall and fair with haunting violet eyes.
1: House Dane is perhaps the most popular house in all of the fandom outside of the great houses. They are also perhaps the most mysterious, and mystery often enhances rather than detracts from popularity. Mystery also creates possibility, and when you combine lots of possibilities with History of Westeros style thoroughness, you end up with a lot of material
0: which is why this is part one. This episode will focus on the characters, their timelines, experiences, and what they mean to the future and present of A Song of Ice and Fire. So, hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros Podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Today's episode is, of course, focused on House Dane and has spoilers for all five books, as well as The World of Ice and Fire. There are no The Winds of Winter spoilers here, though.
1: Now, there was an interesting little process we had with creating this episode. Normally, we've been trying to weave in questions from regular listeners as well as Patreon supporters, and sometimes we're going to specifically name the person out that has the questions, and sometimes we're just going to weave them in and not name the person. This, in this case, we're not going to name people who ask questions, because quite honestly, we've got a lot of questions, and a lot of duplicate questions, so we just wove them into the material. So you'll recognize your questions. If you ask some, you'll see them in here. Also, special thanks to First Sword Joshua Hayes Cutter, known as Joshua the Raw, and other Patreon supporters. A lot of preparation for this episode. is really exciting. We've been wanting to deliver house game for a long time, but... You can't do it until you're ready, and, well, we weren't ready, and now we are. So, yeah, a lot of material, a lot of fun. We're really excited to deliver this, so let's get going. Starting off a little bit of talk about stereotypes and archetypes. That's a a, a bit of a theme when we talk about House Dane. Uh, Dane's, in a lot of ways, do not fit the Song of Ice and Fire at all. And in other ways, they fit perfectly. George R. R. Martin is all about depth in his characters. He's got three-dimensional beings, shades of gray, House Dane gives us characters who do not really fit this mold at all. <laughs> Arthur is awesome and popular, but he's like a walking fantasy stereotype. He's like one of Sansa's songs come to life in a lot of ways. <laughs> Darkstar is kind of the same, but he's the opposite, more of a villainous type. The villain in the same Sansa songs. <laughs> Great skill. He's a Dane. From the mountains instead of the island. Night instead of morning. Yeah, yeah, you get it. But less obviously, Arthur is humble. Darkstar is proud. Arthur submits to duty, joining the King's Guard. This duty leading him to guard a pregnant woman while the royal family he's sworn to protect is off dying in a war. Kind of an inglorious, arguably shameful assignment, yet yeah, he did it. Darkstar, meanwhile, tries to kill a young woman to start a war, ostensibly to achieve glory and notoriety for himself. And
0: just as people love Arthur, a lot of people really, really hate Darkstar.
1: And not because of what he did to Marcella or anything, although that doesn't help, but because he's also kind of a walking fantasy stereotype.
0: (laughs) Are you the sword of the morning now?
2: No. Men call me Darkstar, and I am of the night.
0: The night and day parallel is obvious.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. It's so blatant, it has to be on purpose. George didn't just screw up and forget what kind of story he was writing. He didn't forget that his characters were gray. He didn't make black-white characters by accident. He didn't you know, all of a sudden forget he was writing a book and not a comic. (laughs) He made them extreme for a reason. And while some people are distracted by the silliness of all that, I say we should have faith, try to discern why George is running away with this way. There is a method in his madness of extreme duality, to be sure.
0: It's more than that, though. The Danes also have this magical, mystical element to them. The looks that are sometimes similar to Valyrian, the sword dawn that is comparable to Valyrian steel.
1: The connections to Lightbringer and the Long Night via the popular theories that Dawn is Lightbringer, and this also makes them even less like the other Song of Ice from Firehouses, which tend to be more medieval and less fantastical.
0: Now these mysterious, magical topics, including their origins and why they look similar to the Valyrians, in some cases, will be covered in part two.
1: Yeah, we had so much material that we had to split it, and so we decided to split it between the characters and the history and the background and all that mysterious ancient stuff. Made sense. But the appeal of House Dane goes beyond all that, even. They have a connection to the Tower of Joy mystery. With that are smaller sub-mysteries, everything isn't about Lyanna and Rhaegar, of course. There's mm-hmm. a Shardane and Ned, or whoever. <laughs> the likelihood that some people at Starfall knew, or know at least some parts of what happened before and after, The Tower of Joy isn't terribly far from Starfall, and it's not unlikely Rhaegar trusted the family of the man said to be his best friend, Sir Arthur himself.
0: Between Arthur and Ashar, that's quite a lot of involvement in a central mystery, even though both are dead. Hmm. That said... Theories about either or both of them being alive still exist in plenty of corners of the fandom. We can talk about those a little bit as well in this episode. In addition to all that, we're going to be examining all of the various connections and parallels, speculating on all of these mysteries, and, as we always do in house history episodes, we'll try to divine how their past determines their future. In other words, how will the Danes impact A Song of Ice and Fire
1: for the rest of the books? That's right. First off, we are launching sometime in 2016, uh, Aziz versus Chapter, a new Patreon-slash-subscriber-only feature where I go through some of my favorite chapters. We'll be releasing a teaser episode that will be available to everyone, so you can kind of see what the deal is. Look out for that in early 2016, and if you want to help us reach that milestone, check us out, www.patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Lots of different features and giveaways there, lots of bonuses and benefits, so check that out. I mentioned Uranus earlier because we like to cover all the bases. Any regular listener of our show slash watcher knows that by now. And that includes leveraging our fine community for opinions and insights. Thanks to a few in particular for helping with this episode Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy from Radio Westeros. The shirt there. Check them out, radiowesteros.com. You can get a shirt just like that there too. Nina Friel from Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. The always reliable Rainey's Targaryen, Queen of Timelines. And David Beers, a.k.a. Lucifer Means Lightbringer of Mythical Astronomy and Ice and Fire Podcast, of Ice and Fire Podcast, excuse me, whose voice you'll hear reading quotes this episode, and he'll be our guest for part two, so look out for that and check out his podcast too. Now, a somewhat new pattern we have started with our episodes is to start by looking at outside-the-box details, things that don't necessarily fit into the story, but affect how the story was written. So we've been calling this Metahistory, and it's a good place to start. So, onward to part one. The meta-history of House Dane. The first mention of House Dane in the entire series was the quote we used to start that episode that Ashea read for us.
0: Yes. The early chapters of the Game of Thrones were written in part as far back as 1993, and though some of those ideas that George had for the series have long since evolved or changed entirely, the characters and concepts that Martin introduced first are more likely than most to be at the center of things. We can all agree on that, especially considering that Martin intended this to be a trilogy.
1: And the first few chapters were introduced to the most of the main players. The Starks, the Lannisters, Daenerys, the Others, the Night's Watch, even the Direwolves, mm-hmm. and the Danes. George R. R. Martin has had them as part of the story, the backstory at least, since the very early days, but then later he added characters that became part of the whole story, and so it just seems like the whole thing's growing.
0: Yeah, maybe he didn't initially plan on living Danes being a part of the story, but eventually we do see a real live Dane, though not until Book 3. Here is the first actual appearance of a Dane.
2: Ned, help me
1: remove my breastplate.
0: Arya got goosebumps when Lord Beric said her father's name. But this Ned was only a boy, a fair-haired squire, no
1: more than 10 or 12. This is, of course, Edric Dane. The living Danes, especially this one, Edric, Lord Edric, excuse me, and the plan George R. R. Martin had for him may have been massively altered by the scrapping of the five-year gap, for example. Now, we'll explain that in more detail when we talk about Edric. I think the Danes in in particular were heavily impacted by the five-year gap, but that may have slipped by a lot of people, slipped by us, until we really started looking at it, so... Look forward to getting to that part of the episode as well.
0: Yeah. So now here's a very interesting tidbit that might, just might, give us a hint of what's to come in A Song of Ice and Fire. Here's what could be seen on Amazon and other places back in 2002, when Book 4 was still planned as a dance with dragons instead of a feast for crows.
2: Yeah, ancient history here, folks. Yeah. Continuing the most ambitious and imaginative epic fantasy since the Lord of the Rings, the action in Book 4 of A Song of Ice and Fire begins the day after the end of A Storm of Swords. While the remaining northern lords war endlessly with each other and the Iron Men of the Isles attack the Dreadfort, Sansa becomes a skilled player in the Game of Thrones, with Littlefinger as her mentor, Arya a skilled assassin, and Bran a magician and shapeshifter of great power. All seek to gain revenge for the death of their parents and Robb Stark, whose head was cut off and replaced with the head of his direwolf. Valar Morgulus. All men must die, and wolves too. Daenerys trains her growing dragons and learns from Barristan the secrets of her father, her brother Rhaegar, and other matters that will culminate at Starfell. And John is the 998th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. The wall is his. The night is dark, and he has King Stannis to face. The cold wind is rising, and there are inhuman powers gathering in the north.
0: First of all, we didn't need to have all of that (laughs) read, just the starfall bit, but it's just so awkwardly funny.
1: Second of all, if you're watching on YouTube, those spelling mistakes are not ours. If you're listening and not watching, well, the blurb. Has Starfall and Daenerys spelled wrong? (laughs) That's how the blurb first read, which immediately cuts into its credibility. Their credibility looks even worse when you've seen several of these blurbs. They never look good. They've said some really awkward things. Ironborn attacking the Dreadfort? Mm, We haven't read that yet, and it's 13 years later, but we may have seen it and laughed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but back on point, it is an awfully specific mention of Starfall, which is a pretty obscure place. So despite the general unreliability of these things, these verbs and whatnot, they had to have been given some direction to use that name. They didn't just come up with that. So we'll refer to this point again later in the episode when we consider the future of House Dane and the role that they might play. Today, as we said, we're dealing with the characters as the Danes do not have large armies or great political influence or notable wealth that we know of which is almost a relief, because there's just so much cool stuff to talk about already. How could we hope to handle it all?
1: Yeah, instead of large armies or that stuff, they have a rich mystical background, which, we repeat, all scheduled for part two, so stay tuned for that in a few weeks. As always, we will use history as a guide to predict the future, as we look for parallel traits and situations between the Danes of old and the Danes of present and future. Considering the importance, the sheer gravity of all the mysteries that Danes are a part of, well, lovely listeners, we're digging for gold here and, and keeping an eye on the sky for falling stars. Part 2 Sir Arthur Dane, The Sword of the Morning. Was there one who was best of all?
2: The finest knight I ever saw was Sir Arthur Dane, who fought with a blade called Dawn, forged from the heart of a fallen star. They called him the Sword of the Morning, and he would have killed me but for Howland Reed.
1: Father had gotten sad then, and he would say no more. Bran wished he had asked him what he meant.
0: For a guy who died well before the story even began, Arthur is enormously popular. There's nothing wrong with that. He's awesome and mysterious, and you don't need to explain liking someone who is awesome and mysterious. That said... The cynical view of him is kind of
1: hilarious. (laughs) A guy who spent the entire war guarding a pregnant woman only to be killed by a Kranichman who had recently been bullied by teenage squires who needed rescuing by that same pregnant woman. Well, before she was pregnant. Now, this is, of course, unfair, but it's pretty funny. (laughs) In the realm proper, for example, though, Ned is widely believed to be the one who killed Arthur. But as we just saw in this quote opening this part, Ned says Arthur would have killed him without Reed's intervention.
0: Of course, many of us readers have long considered Howland being the killer as a very compelling possibility with him sneaking in behind or using his net or something like that. Even a poisoned dart is possible.
1: Yeah, these ideas have been in the fandom a long time. Remember, we're talking about book one stuff here. Keep that in mind. 1996. People have been trying to figure this stuff out for a long time. There are many Howland Reed theories. Ned killing Arthur is also called into doubt in a number of other places. George R. R. Martin calls Ned an average swordsman. How could an average swordsman defeat Arthur without help? Well, he probably couldn't. <laughs> Howland Reed, however, that answer fits. Though Arthur having been wounded prior to facing Ned and Howland is possible too, it was a seven on three, there's no, no reason to assume Ned and, and Arthur are the first two to clash. It could have been, you know, other people fighting, and then they came together later. All the above could be true. And Ned could be, you know, he's a humble guy, he could be giving extra credit to his friend, you know, that's just how he is. But bottom line, there's no way we can accept Ned beating Arthur straight up one-on-one, so there has to be more to it.
0: Yeah, that's true. The trait most associated with Arthur is his skill, after all, followed by honor. We hear that he was the deadliest of a legendary Kingsguard and a perfect example of chivalry. This really doesn't need analysis, and that's why we can't accept Ned beating him without aid. Our main sources for this are pretty trustworthy, extremely trustworthy, especially given that we're reading their inner thoughts. Mm. The point of view sources for Arthur are Ned, Jamie, and Barristan. Ned fought against him, Jamie fought under him, and was knighted by him. Barriston was his sworn brother.
1: Case closed. Those are all honest guys. Nah, even Jamie uh, <laughs> Inside his own head. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so he's proof that importance to the story doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with being liked. Because despite Dawn, despite his prowess, his loyalty to the crown and to his friends, mostly Rhaegar, ensured that he was unable to be a big player. Well, you would think anyway. Because perhaps this underestimates him. As close as he was to Rhaegar, and as respected as he was, one would think he had the potential to be a big influence on politics. I don't mean to suggest that he was like a schemer, although it's possible, but that his closeness to the prince had to influence Rhaegar's personality. Ultimately, the prince calls the shots, unless Ares overrides him, of course, but Arthur wasn't just Rhaegar's favorite Kingsguard or something. They were best friends, and best friends influence each other, especially serious guys like these two.
0: (laughs) So here we back up and look at Arthur and how he came to be worthy of all this regard, and that closeness to Rhaegar, which Barristan seemed a little jealous of. Yeah.
1: The Prince of Dragonstone had never trusted him as he had trusted Arthur Dane. Harrenhal was proof of that. The year of the False Spring. The memory was still bitter.
0: So now we move on to young Arthur. We have no idea how old Arthur was, except that he was older than Rhaegar. Possibly by only a couple of years, but possibly by a good deal more, like five or even ten. Mm -hmm. We're going to go back and forth a bit with the possibility that he's only three to four years older versus the older ring. Rhaegar died at age 24, so Arthur would have been anywhere from his mid to late 20s to early to mid 30s when he died at the Tower of Joy. By the lower end of that reckoning, he'd have been a mere toddler of the morning when <laughs> Summerhall and Rhaegar's birth occurred. Around five, when Sir Barristan slew Meles the Monstrous on the Stepstones during the War of the Nine Penny Kings, and about seven when Ares became, Ares II became king. We don't know when he joined the Kingsguard or how he became noticed, Or when he became Sword of the Morning, but we do know a few things.
1: Yeah, we're as usual we're able to narrow things down. There's clues here and there, and sometimes that presents a bigger picture than one might think just from looking at all the disconnected references here and there. He became the Sword of the Morning before joining the Kingsguard, according to the World of Ice and Fire app. So that much we know, and this makes intuitive sense. His own family noticing his greatness before the realm proper—that just that that just makes sense. In fact, granting him dawn. May have been what got him that notice in the first place. That may be what took, made Ares and Court take notice. Or this could have all happened around the same time. Because the obvious way for him to become famous in the first place was tournaments. We know he was a tournament champion. And tournament champions are always household names in the South. That's just how it works. Yeah. And substantial tournament success is specifically mentioned in Arthur's past. So this is most likely the basis for his initial fame. And Sword of the Morning would have just, you know, added on top of that, piling it on. The guy's famous, yeah. right? Now, This quote from the World of Ice and Fire might be telling us exactly when Arthur went to King's Landing.
2: The Dornishmen who had come to court with Princess Elia were in the prince's confidence as well, particularly Prince Lewin Martell, Elia's uncle and a sworn brother of the Kingsguard. But the most formidable of all Rhaegar's friends and allies in King's Landing was surely Sir Arthur Dayne, the Sword of the Morning.
1: Now, we're not sure if that's saying Arthur was among those that came to court with Princess Elia, but it makes a ton of sense, because Ashara Dane definitely came with Elia as one of her ladies-in-waiting. That would mean Sir Arthur arrived in King's Landing around 279. He would die only about four years later. Now, for that to fit, he would have been around 18 or 19 when he became Sword of the Morning and joined the King's Guard at or around the same time Prince Lewin and Martel did. This fits a pattern we've seen several times. A famous noble brother added to the King's Guard. At the same time, a connection to the royal family is established. It seems that distrust of the king is a common thread in these cases.
0: However, Sir Arthur won the tourney celebrating the birth of Prince Viserys, defeating Rhaegar in the final match. This was in 276, and the note says Arthur was a Kingsguard knight at the time. This means Arthur joined the Kingsguard at least three years earlier than our first guest. So we're a bit conflicted, but so is the info. This is an easy enough mistake for Maester Yandel to make, though. You know, assuming the great Sarah Arthur, who was so famous in his lifetime, hadn't actually taken the white yet. If Yandel is correct, though, and to be fair, he probably is, then a few other things fit better, too. Such as his friendship with Rhaegar, and his reputation having reached such great heights. Mm-hmm. But guessing is fun, too. <laughs> One day we hope to have much more detail to discuss regarding his early life. Not a lot actually depends on us kneeling down his age. But it definitely is fun to play with. Now, a look at Arthur at court. Mm -hmm. Just as Loras Tyrell took the white, as Marjorie was set to wed the violent King Joffrey, the Princess of Dorne and the Lord of Starfall would not have failed to notice the, uh, problems with the (laughs) Mad King, who had certainly earned his nickname by then.
1: That's right. Consider this as an aside and partial alternative to join the King's Guard to protect the girl idea. Aerys didn't really like or trust the Dornish once they all started to side with Rhaegar so you wouldn't expect him to have two of them in his Kingsguard, unless you think of it in terms of Jaime, or in terms of timing, or a little of both. First off, remember that Ares named Jaime to his Kingsguard to take him away from Tywin. Not really considering the threat to himself. (laughs) So perhaps he wanted Sir Arthur, and perhaps Lewin Martell as well, to take him away from his family, or from Rhaegar.
0: Yeah, as we described in our Summerhall series, Ares seems to have an unusual trust in the Kingsguard that doesn't really match his general paranoia. It's not a smart idea, but it does fit the pattern for Ares. But Ares may have become paranoid about the Dornish just when these two take took the white.
1: Yeah, so joining the Kingsguard might not have been their initial t- uh, intent. Arthur fits the mold perfectly for a Kingsguard. Lewin, maybe less so. He's he's too highborn, although we've seen extremely highborn people in the Kingsguard before. It's just it's a little unusual. He had a paramour. So to me, that says maybe he joined the Kingsguard because he felt he had to, not because he was really excited about doing it. He just was worried about, you know, the family was worried about Elia. Rightfully so, as it turns out. But the main point is that he's Dornish, and that's the thing that Ares is not cool with.
0: Yeah. In other words, perhaps Prince Lewin and Sarah Arthur were there as protectors, and taking the white happened due to unexpected circumstances, like Ares wanting to make them his, or because it became necessary.
1: Now, only the King's Guard were allowed to carry swords in the King's presence. After all, we have to keep in mind that these were the final years before the rebellion. After the defiance of Duskendale, when Ares was at his maddest, cruelest, most unpredictable. When Varys was whispering in his ear that Rhaegar would move against him, and Varys was probably not wrong either.
0: <laughs> but again, that's also another story. Our uncertainty, our uncertainty about Arthur's age and King Guard timing, is not in conflict here. Even if Arthur came to court well before Ashara, he would still be her protector. I I I have to wonder how much time they were able to spend together. Arthur may have been extremely pleased to see so many countrymen and his own sister come to King's Landing, but he may also have worried for them. Mm -hmm. I would be.
1: Yeah, right? (laughs) So
3: then we
0: move on to the Red Vipers anecdote, which is a really interesting tidbit to fit into our picture. Mm -hmm. Starting around 272, early 273... Elia and Oberyn Martell went on the marriage tour that Oberyn tells Tyrion about, you know, the one that ended at Casterly Rock not long after Tyrion's birth. Oberyn believes the tour was mostly about Cersei and Jaime, and that his own mother and Joanna Lannister were were behind it all. Mm -hmm. But that's not why we care. We care because Oberyn says this tour, which included several important houses, started at Starfall. Mm -hmm. And the Red Viper had this to say about all the men and boys offered as Elia's husband along the way.
1: There was Little Lord Lazy Eye, Squire Squishlips, one I named The Whale That Walks, that sort of thing. The only one who was even halfway presentable was Baylor Hightower.
0: So clearly Arthur was not presented as a suitor to Elia. She and Oberyn bored easily, but they were probably not bored of the morning. (laughs) Oh, God. But what... (laughs) What What if he was Squire Squishlips?
1: <laughs> right, he was awkward then, but Oberon's taunting got to him, and he started training. Eventually, cue the awkward little arty training montage. Little Sir Arty, the Sword of the Morning. Next thing you know, he's the greatest knight in the realm. Bam! Negative reinforcement for the win. No, that's that's probably not what happened.
0: <laughs> really, though, what probably happened was that he was either too young, or gone to the King's Guard already, or perhaps, most likely, his elder brother, Edric's father, was the one presented, since Ilia Martell would not marry a second son, even one like Arthur, unless he was the Lord of Starfall.
1: Right. So Arthur's brother might have been Squire Squish Lips, or Lord Little Lord Lazy Eye. Oh, but <laughs> such a lovely violet lazy eye yeah. it was. It's possible Shara was suggested as a match for Oberyn, but she was probably only six or seven, and that's too young, even for him. <laughs> Another reason to think he was on the older side, is that multiple times Sir Arthur is referred to as Rhaegar's Oldest friend Now, I don't take that to literally mean he was the highest age among his friends, but to mean the one who had been his friend the longest. And if they'd only been at court a few years together, that doesn't necessarily work. So if he came to court with Elia and Prince Lewin in the late 270s, that's only three or four years of friendship. Eh, Maybe that's not long enough. So so maybe they knew each other sooner?
0: Yeah, the answer may be who says that they didn't get to know each other before this. Since Arthur was a notable tourney champion, then he may have known Rhaegar through that. If so, they both would have had something extra to look forward to when the marriage was
1: finalized. <laughs> now, he was in charge of the campaign against the Kingswood Brotherhood circa 281. Now, the Lord Commander Gerald Hightower was injured, but it's doubtful a relative newbie would be in- put in charge over the senior White Swords. Again, this was a king- legendary Kingsguard. Barristan was in it, and he wasn't put in charge. Prince Lewin Martel, newer to the Kingsguard, but higher born... This is interesting, and uh, that Ares would select him may speak to his extreme ability and may speak to him having been in the King's Guard longer, you know, towards the lo- wider range of our guests there. Though it also could just be that he thought Arthur was particularly well-suited for the task.
0: But also possibly we're just looking at it wrong. Rhaegar and Ares were said to be a bit like the blacks and the greens during the Dance of the Dragons, two distinct parties in danger of breaking out into civil war. Perhaps Ares sent Sir Arthur to the Kingswood to get him... And his influence out of the way for a time. Hmm. Maybe having him in the King's Guard was backfiring slightly, like it would a lot more than slightly with Jaime a bit later.
1: <laughs> now, if Sir Arthur were merely an elite sword, this might not be such a big deal to Aerys. So perhaps a second look is warranted. The man behind Dawn. The quote we read earlier suggested that Arthur was formidable. Should be looked at in a different light. He was referred to as a more important ally for Rhaegar than even Prince Lewin. Which implies our earlier conjecture that he wasn't involved in politics and court life apart from being a personal influence on Rhaegar. It is very possibly wrong. Sir Arthur may have been outspoken, or of such great charisma that his opinions carried enormous weight.
0: Yeah, Jamie thinks to himself when assembling his Kingsguard for the first time after losing his hand.
1: He wondered what Sir Arthur Dayne would have to say of this lot. How is it
2: that the Kingsguard has fallen so
1: low? Most like.
0: This is- modestly supports the idea that Arthur was the opinionated type. And here's another example. When arriving in the camp of the Golden Company, John Connington, also a friend of Rhaegar's, and thus familiar with Sir Arthur, thinks on his exacting standards.
1: It was a camp that even Arthur Dane might have approved of. Compact, orderly, defensible.
0: Noticed might have approved of. (laughs) And this from a guy, Connington, who is strict as hell himself, Consider how tough he was on young Griff and on Tyrion, and how harshly he judges himself for that matter.
1: Jamie repeats Arthur's can- discipline in campaign himself against the Brotherhood of Albaners. Now speaking of Jamie Lannister was the youngest ever to join the King's Guard at age fifteen in the year two hundred eighty one, Sir Arthur was the one to knight him earlier that year. When dawn came his knees were raw and bloody.
2: All knights must bleed, Jamie. Sir Arthur Dane had said when he saw, Blood is the seal of our devotion.
1: With dawn he tapped him on the shoulder. The pale blade was so sharp that even the light touch cut through Jamie's tunic, so he bled anew. One wonders if it troubled Sir Arthur that he knighted the eventual kingslayer. A brutal parallel here is that his best friend Rhaegar knighted Sir Gregor. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah.
0: Whether this was a problem for him or not, there's some evidence that he was sad in general. And my image of him has that aspect front and center. He doesn't exactly seem like a rousing good time.
2: <laughs> and these were no shadows. Their faces burned clear even now. Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, had a sad smile on his lips.
1: Now, during his famous fever dream, just before rescuing Jamie or Brienne, rather Jamie rescuing Brienne,
2: we all swore oaths," said Sir Arthur Dane, "so sadly.
1: So both Ned and Jamie remember Arthur looking sad in their memories, and even though these are our sad memories in general, they don't remember sad faces on anyone else. This shows a similarity to Rhaegar that may have contributed to their friendship.
0: For Arthur, we have sadness. For Rhaegar, we have melancholy.
1: <laughs> Two peas in an emo pod. <laughs> you can't ask for a better pair of fighters on your side. But I don't think you want them on your improv comedy team.
0: <laughs> to be fair though, they did have a lot to be sad about. They
1: really did, it's yeah.
0: true. Arthur, also like Rhaegar, seemed to be a man who didn't look first to his sword when it came to solving problems. It was Jamie's skill and bravery during the campaign against the Kingswood Brotherhood that got him knighted and that campaign saw Arthur use diplomacy and friendship as a weapon.
1: Here's Jenny. If you want their help, you need to make them love you. That was how Arthur Dane did it when we rode against the Kingswood Brotherhood. He paid the small folk for the food we ate, brought their grievances to King Aerys, expanded the grazing lands around their villages, even won them the right to fell a certain number of trees each year and take a few of the king's deer during the autumn. The forest folk had looked atoying to defend them, but Sir Arthur did more for them than the Brotherhood could ever hope to do, and won them to our side. After that, the rest was easy.
0: But, of course, Arthur also used his weapon as a weapon. <laughs> so now we have Arthur's page in the light Book. He'd held his own against the Smiling Knight, though it was Sir Arthur who slew him. What a fight that was, and what a foe. The Smiling Knight was a madman, cruelty and chivalry all jumbled up together. But he did not know the meaning of fear, and Dane, with Dawn in hand, the outlaw's longsword had so many notches by the end that Sir Arthur had stopped to let him fetch a new one.
1: It's that white sword of yours I want, the robber knight told him as they resumed,
2: though he was bleeding from a dozen wounds by then. Then you shall have it, sir, the sword of the morning replied, and made an end of it.
0: We don't actually know what his page looks like, so let's take some guesses. First of all, though, just for a second, we don't actually know what Arthur looked like pretty much at all. He may have had the traditional Dane purple eyes, but if he had hair like Darkstar or even Edric, he would look pretty noteworthy and, well, no notes have been given. So I personally do lean towards dark hair, and this is very important stuff, (laughs) the the color of (laughs) Arthur Dane's
1: hair.
2: Now Jamie thinking here. She is stronger than I am. The realization chilled him. Robert had been stronger than him, to be sure. The White Bull Gerald Hightower as well, in his heyday, and Sir Arthur Dane.
1: So, in fighting Brienne, he thinks of the strongest he's known.
2: Good for Brienne, too, by the way.
1: But Arthur is specifically mentioned as one of the strongest Jamie knew, and he's known some of the best, given that list. Mm-hmm. We're guessing he was probably tall to wear slash wield Don, though Mance Raider is of middling height and wields a great sword impressively, so that's not 100% certain. Mm-hmm. It's just likely. <sighs>
0: Now, when Sir Barristan is dismissed by Joffrey, he names the biggest names he can.
1: I fought beside the White Bull and Prince Lewin of Dorne, beside Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning.
0: Quote always cracks me up a little bit.
1: Like, (laughs) you
0: don't know who I know. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You youngsters. (laughs) In my day.
3: Back
0: to what would actually be on his page in the White Book, though, his tourney successes would no doubt be included, as such things do go in the book. For instance, Arthur won the tourney at Lannisport in honor of Viserys' birth, beating Rhaegar in the finals. But then he lost to Rhaegar at the tourney of Harrenhal. This quote sums it up a little bit.
1: Most famous of all was Sir Arthur Dane, the deadliest of King Aerys II's Kingsguard, who defeated the Kingswood Brotherhood and won renown in every tourney in melee. Every tourney in melee? Mm,
0: apparently not. <laughs> no. He got, he got high up in... Attorney of hall as well. Yeah, <laughs>
1: still renowned. That's just woo. yeah. <laughs> Every yes, time yeah. sounds great
0: for Arthur, but there's something missing, isn't there? Barriston was also attorney champion, and that gets mentioned. But when people talk about him, the things the things that come to mind are Duskendale and the War of Ninepenny Kings. In other words, real fights. <laughs> Taking down the Kingswood Brotherhood is a serious achievement, no doubt whatsoever. But Arthur's career is decidedly short on actual deadly fighting. Until the one that killed him, of course. And no offense to Arthur fans, of course. So here's a tidbit to balance things out. Martin has stated that if they fought in their primes, Arthur would beat Barriston with dawn. Without Dawn, it's too close to call.
1: So even though, or if, Arthur had a lot less real experience, the great creator says he's just as good as Barristan, and that's good enough for us. <sighs> we figure there are unmentioned deeds of his, too, given all the unknown. There's probably some great things he did that we just haven't heard of. No. So final thoughts on Arthur. Now let's backtrack to when we called him a fantasy stereotype, because there's at least a little room for this to be exaggerated. So let's dial that back a little bit. Let's see how George R. Martin made him less of a trope after all, or at least see where there's room. <laughs> to explore that possibility. One obvious thing is that he and his other sworn brothers were in service to a murderously cruel tyrant. King Ares, of course. In some ways, it's easier to be stubborn than admit you made a vow to a bad king, and that your vows as a knight to protect the weak could arguably be said to come first, like what Jamie (laughs) Yeah, the
0: truest and best knight in the realm, serving an evil king, is definitely not a stereotype, so there's some inversion there already. Consider Jamie, again, thinking on his younger
1: self.
2: That boy had wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane, but someplace along the way, he had become the Smiling Knight instead.
1: As far as reputation and honor goes, he's right. But as far as the life he lived and the things he had to experience, Jamie's life actually had a lot in common with Arthur's, just not in all in the way he wanted. Jamie suffered in great part because he had to protect and witness the awful deeds of that same cruel, weak, disgusting king. Yeah. Arthur suffered this even longer, and they both knew the taste. And they both had to find ways to deal with that internal conflict. Now, as Jamie was denied a chance to compete at the Tourney of Harrenhal, Arthur may have been denied attendance to Rhaegar's wedding, for example. Similar kind of thing. Ares refused to attend and didn't allow Viserys to go either. This is part of his growing distrust of the Dornish. That perhaps another thing they shared... Ares' cruelties came in many forms. It wasn't just about burning people alive.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and Arthur may have been at court before the worst of Ares' madness. He may have seen the decline play out. He may have lost Ares' trust as he and Rhaegar became friends, and Ares grew to distrust not only Rhaegar, but the Dornish in general. The same thing that disillusioned Jaime likely contributed to Arthur's sadness, too. Arthur was spared the sight of Brandon and Rickard Stark's murder, but he knew that it happened, and no doubt he saw the king commit many, many other atrocities. Yeah, the
1: sword of the morning, the most chivalrous knight in the realm, saw plenty of men consumed by wildfire, probably for things that they didn't really deserve. Mm. But another way to look at him is to compare him to Sir Barriston. Wasn't Barriston a bit of a fantasy stereotype, too? Before we saw inside his head? What we saw was a lot more conflict and doubt than what had appeared on the surface. Barristan is only truly comfortable fighting because it's the only thing he truly understands, and he's great at it. Arthur may have had this in common with him. He was a man doomed by his own high morals, devoted to a mad king, and a best friend who may have been a bit obsessed by prophecy, or if you prefer, had a relationship that greatly contributed to a bloody civil war, and the downfall of his own family, justified or not, it's tragic. Simply put, the familiar concept of the human heart in conflict with itself absolutely applies to Arthur. It exists even in these secondary historical characters. Even if you hadn't thought about it before, I think we've made it pretty clear that it's there. Bereshton also wondered what might have been if he had beaten Rhaegar, not allowing him to give the crown of love and beauty to Liana. Well, Arthur had this same chance as well, but also lost to the prince. He may have had the same sort of, man, if only I had beaten <laughs> my friend there. Did uh-huh. he see what came next coming? Did Arthur? Like, Barristan didn't see it coming. No one else did, probably, but Arthur might have. They're really close friends. He might have heard of what happened the night before. He might have known. Did Rhaegar tell him of having met Lyanna? Did Rhaegar convince him? Did he try to convince him that he, as a wielder of dawn, was part of this prophecy, too, somehow? Arthur surely had thoughts on all of this, whichever things Rhaegar brought up to him, anyway. And he may have had influence on the outcome. He may have pushed Rhaegar to do what he did. He may have been like, yeah... Go do that. Go give her the crown of love and beauty. Probably not, but it's possible. It just goes to show how little we know about him. In the end, though, he died to someone who, under most any other circumstances, seems like the kind of guy that would be a great friend to him, at least to somebody he could respect, and that just deepens the tragedy. We're talking about Ned, of course.
0: Yeah, just like Barristan is haunted by his own failures, this is likely another parallel to Arthur, who outlived the majority of the royal family he pledged to protect, most painfully probably, his own best friend Rhaegar. Of course, there was nothing he could have done about it, but just as that's no solace to Barristan, it's not likely to have been much solace to Sir Arthur. Yeah,
1: Barristan blames himself for all the kings that died, even though they died to things that, I mean, he was mortally wounded when (laughs) Rhaegar died. He was no, he couldn't have possibly saved Ares. But he totally blames himself Uh, anyway, because it's his duty. It's the kind of guys (laughs) these, these Kingsguard are, and Arthur seems cut from the same cloth. And Arthur's sadness, perhaps it stems in part from foreknowledge. He saw it all coming, maybe. Or at least a lot of it. Rhaegar and Ares' actions could only lead to devastation. From Ned's dream, it seems that Arthur, Oswell, and Gerald knew prior to their final stand at the Tower of Joy what had happened at King's Landing and the Trident. He also knew what he himself would do. As he waited there at the Tower, he must have known that his time was short.
0: Retreat was no option, as Lord Commander Hightower said.
2: The Kingsguard does not flee. Then or now, said Sir
0: Arthur, he donned his helm. Ned's wraiths moved up beside him with shadow swords in hand. They were seven against three.
1: Now, Arthur would not have known about Varys' baby switch, if it even happened. So from his perspective, Rhaegar's descendants were dead. Except for Jon. There was no promise exacted by Lyanna yet, so his life was surely in danger from their perspective. I mean, Targaryens were being killed off left and right. And so he went out as the man he was.
2: And now it begins.
0: Said Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning. He unsheathed Dawn and held it with both hands. The blade was pale as milk glass, alive with light. No. Ned said with sadness in his voice.
1: Now it ends.
0: At least Arthur didn't have to witness Lyanna's passing, which would be yet another death of someone he had sworn to protect. He was also spared the death of his sister, which apparently came not long after Ned returned Dawn to Starfall. Now, the tale of the Danes doesn't really get any happier. Alshara <laughs> is next on our agenda, and as sad as Arthur's tale was, his sister's is arguably worse, but it's not all sadness, it's, it's, it's also quite compelling.
1: First off, a shout-out to our Patreon Northern champions, Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North, the Scourge of Skagos, Small Paul of House Buckley, J. Wilson, Winter's King, and Stephen Hill, Bastard of the Crag. If Patreon isn't for you, you can always make a straight PayPal donation. Go to historyofwestros.com, click on the Donate button, and give however much you feel comfortable with. We'll appreciate it in any case. Part 3,
0: Ashara Dane. Tragedy, Conflict, and Mystery.
2: Had she been chosen, much war and woe might have been avoided. His choice would have been a young maiden not long at court, one of Elia's companions. Though compared to a the Dornish princess was a kitchen drab.
0: He's, of course, referring to Lyanna being chosen as Queen of Love and Beauty.
1: Now research on a turned up far more conflict and general interest than we imagined. And we can imagine quite a bit. <laughs> I was struck by how often she was caught in the middle of events that put people she loved on opposite sides of one another. The Tower of Joy is not the only case, although that is obviously the main one.
0: But first, a little background on young Ashara. Young Ashara. (laughs) She is the younger sister of Arthur, older sister to Illyria, and we probably know more about her than Illyria and less than Arthur. We don't really know anything about her early life. She may have been presented as a possible bride for Oberyn, but was probably too young, or maybe with his reputation, they kept her out of sight. <laughs> she would have seen her brother Arthur earn the title Sword of the Morning and seen him leave for the Kingsguard.
1: Taking her possible age in consideration with Arthur's, if he was on the younger end, they were probably somewhat close in age. If he was on the older end, then it's even possible they were half-siblings. Illyria is apparently much younger than any of them, and we'll talk about her later. Could be that the sisters, that those sisters share a mother. And we're going to talk about that more when we get to Illyria. But it is possible, kind of unlikely, but got to throw it out there. Guessing that she was close to Ned's age, though, makes the most sense to us. And George R. Martin confirmed that, quote, had she lived, she'd be in her 30s. Meaning she was around 15 to 21 at the turning of Hall, where Ned would have been around 18 or very close. So, late teens, in that range.
0: Yeah, this means she was in her early to mid-teens when she came to court in 279 as a lady-in-waiting to Princess Elia, who, of course, married Prince Rhaegar. Now, Ashara at court. At court, she would find her brother and other noble figures, but again, (laughs) Ares. Ares. Always Ares with these previous generation (laughs) stories. It's hard to say what effect he had on her specifically, though, but it couldn't have been positive. But, thankfully, she was quite likely spared a lot of the worst, as Rhaegar and Elia spent most of their time on Dragonstone rather than the Red Keep. And of course, Ashara would be wherever Elia was.
3: Yeah,
1: smart thinking. Stay away from Ares. <laughs> if she and Arthur came to court at the same time, and probably even if they didn't, it's likely enough they were close. Arthur, as a dutiful, chivalrous dude, would have been protective of the least, both from his perspective and hers. This would be important and a big part of their relationship. Prior historical examples show that the crown prince often has Kingsguard with him, or her, her <laughs> era, at Dragonstone. Highly likely Arthur spent a lot of time at Dragonstone, too. Although, he clearly came back at some point to lead the campaign against the Kingswood Brotherhood, and they all came back for the turning of But they may have wound up on opposite sides of one too many dramas. Shea, or Asha, I do that a lot. Ash- Ashara <laughs> and Arthur. Looking at things from her perspective really gets at why she might have killed herself. Well, it starts to anyway. You can never truly understand what's going on in someone's head when they do that. But before that, though, she had an impact on several people herself.
0: Yeah. Before Ned and Ashara ever met, Barristan fell in love with her. This would have been around the year 279, as we're guessing that Ashara went to Dragonstone with Elia by mid-280. Beristin makes his feelings clear, but he gives us very little to go on as to how much they actually interacted.
1: Yeah, so let's jump forward to Ashara at the tourney of Harrenhal, because we just don't have much else for her early life. Although this is still pretty much her early life, she's fairly young at this point still. Now Beristin thinks,
2: If I had unhorsed Rhaegar and crowned Ashara Queen of Love and Beauty... Might she have looked to me instead of Stark?
1: This somewhat implies they knew each other a little, at least. Like, I don't know if she'd randomly, out of all the possible people, is he really thinking she yeah. would turn to, to him? Uh, it sounds like they at least knew each other a bit, had some conversations, you know, maybe a, a shy thinking. glance here and there. Yeah, wishful thinking <laughs> for Barrister. Yeah, he's just like, nah, she never noticed maybe
3: me. Maybe it would have happened. <laughs>
1: Lots of reasons are given for why Ned could or couldn't have slept with Ashara at the tourney, but frankly, the most convincing thing to me is one of the same things that clue us into Jon Snow not being his. That being, he's just not the type. He's shy, for one thing, and apparently needed Brandon, his older brother, to talk to her for him. Like, will you talk to that girl for me? Is this guy really going to be sleeping with her later that night? I mean, he's (laughs) too shy to even talk to her. How's he going to get to that stage? I (laughs) mean... Plus, Ned values honor, and you know how these highborn ladies are. Sleeping and having sex out of wedlock is bad for their honor. Or, uh-huh. you know, that's just the society they lived in. Yeah. Ned is quite aware of that, so uh-huh. you've got shyness and her honor that's, you know, uh-huh. keeping...
0: On the other hand, though, maybe Ashara was the aggressive type. She is yeah. dornish, after that's all. possible. Ned may have hang-ups galore, but she might feel the opposite, for all we know. In this case, in fact, Ned's shyness could work against him. <laughs> Just as shy guys don't instigate sex with beautiful women, or women in general, maybe, generally speaking, <laughs> neither do they turn down beautiful women or women in general instigating sex with him, generally speaking.
1: So, as with so many other things, that cut, sword cuts both ways. That coin has two sides, etc., etc. Well, we need to only remember that Ned is a lot like Rob and vice versa, and look at what honor meant to him in the heat of things with Jane. Wound aside, that he's fair. Ned hadn't yeah. been injured. <laughs> yeah,
0: so we tend,
3: we tend
1: nor, nor was he betrothed.
0: So we tend to lean away from Ned, yeah, as a Shara's love interest. But uh, given that Barristan thinks of Stark in that quote and not a specific Stark, we must consider Brandon already known to be a serious womanizer as having slept uh, as having slept with the Shara. Benjen was there, but he was only fourteen, yeah, right a little, a little 14, young yeah. for that. Makes a compelling idea for why he would join the Night's Watch. I have certainly have seen some people think of it, but I I think he's too young.
1: Yeah, and of course he didn't join. He waited until after the war to join the Night's Watch. These things, events were so far apart. It's possible, but I think... Things like that come from just not having enough information. Yeah. Just, I
0: think Brandon's our best possibility, just giving them know yeah. Brandon's a womanizer.
1: Yeah, and then and, and the same book that tells us he's a womanizer is when this is all revealed. Yeah. It's all kind of written around the same time. We're,
0: ta- we're of course talking about Barbary Riswell, Barbary Dustin. Yeah.
1: yeah, talking. Yeah, her experience with him with Brandon was that he was a major womanizer. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that she liked that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this point is made stronger when we consider that Barriston, if he loved Ashara would take a dim view of anyone who dishonored her. As someone did dishonor her, as he thinks on vaguely. But we don't know if the dishonoring and any had anything to do with the Stark thing. Mm-hmm. It sounds more like she was dishonored, then she went to Stark for comfort slash solace slash aid, whatever.
0: Yeah, just as Ned has no negative thoughts of Rhaegar, which leads us to believe there was no kidnapping and rapes, Barristan has no negative thoughts or interactions with Ned. There's no hint of acrimony in the slightest. So this again points to Brandon. If we're assuming a Stark impregnated Ashara at all,
1: yeah, I mean Ned and Br- Ned and, and Barristan interact several times, I and mean, he Berestyn's nothing but pleasant and outgoing and just complimentary. Yeah, it just doesn't sound like someone he has a grudge with. So what was the dishonoring though? What happened to Ashara? The most popular theory is that if not a consensual encounter with Brandon. She was raped. And Aries' name has been thrown out there since he was that kind of guy. Now, I tend to discount this, though. Even though Aerys was that kind of guy, this was past that point for him. He was... This was the point in, after he had made his vow to stay true to his wife. And I think he took that vow seriously because it worked. Right after he stopped sleeping around, Viserys was born and didn't die. And prior to that, they lost, like, eight yeah. children to stillbirths and miscarriages. Aries was not a... Smart man. So I think he's going to look at things simply. He's like, I took the vow. Baby lived. Stick to that. (laughs) Plus, there's Arthur. His (laughs) own, you know, Ashara's sister. Brother, rather, right there. Is Ares really going to rape Ashara in front of Arthur? I don't think even Ares would do that.
0: Maybe he would. Yeah, maybe he would. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Ashara's relationship with Uliah is potentially interesting as well. Not too much about it, but it does come into play here. Especially if they became close. If so... How would she feel when Rhaegar shamed her friend in front of everyone at this very same tourney of Harrenhal? I doubt that she would be happy with Rhaegar, and that's her brother's best friend.
1: So here's some of that conflict. Relationships between people she's close to going really badly. And, just, and she just had gotten to know, well, Ned and or Brandon, and maybe Benjamin too. So maybe she loved Ned or Brandon and hated Lyanna. And loved her brother Arthur while hating Rhaegar. And perhaps she blamed Lyanna for what went wrong. The feelings she had for Ned could have been confused by negative feelings for Lyanna.
0: And that's if she even had feelings for Ned. Yeah. That's a rumor, too. Ned doesn't think of her, for one. The only one who dares bring that name up to him is Cersei, though Catelyn had done it once long ago. When Rhaegar and Lyanna ran off, Arthur was with them. Ashara would probably not see her brother again. But this is where it gets a little confusing.
1: A lot confusing, really, and it's already confusing to this (laughs) point. And that's the point. Taking a look at the evidence on Ashara Dane does not lead to many firm conclusions, and that's almost certainly intentional. So, George wants us to be confused, he wants her to be conflicting information, and that alone tells us something. Now here's another open question. When did Ashara leave Dragonstone or the Red Keep, whichever it was she was at at the time, to return to Starfall? After she got pregnant, makes sense.
0: Yeah, this child was supposedly a stillborn girl, and if so, it would have died long before the end of the war. Yeah. Hall was a year before the war. So really, she either lost this child well before the war even started, or she didn't get pregnant at Hall. Or the conspiracy theorists are right, and the child is left.
1: <laughs> Still, that's a lot of deaths. Some of which probably mattered to her a lot, depending on how she felt about other things. Yeah, See
0: how confusing this is? We don't is? even know
1: which of the people that died mm. she was close to would have mattered to her. Uh-huh. Like, you assume that they mostly would have, but if she, say, hated Liana or Rhaegar, she might I not have... never
0: more. was that actually that close to Elia. Right? Yeah, yeah,
1: maybe she didn't really like Elia. I mean, she was her lady-in-waiting. That doesn't mean they actually got along. I mean, no. those things are set up by these noble families, so... Yeah. In any case, most everyone dies yeah. by the time she sees Ned at Starfall when he brings Dawn back and the terrible news. Lyanna, Rhaegar, Arthur, Brandon, and Rickard murdered horribly, and her own daughter is dead.
0: And Ilya. She was friends, too. Yeah, Ilya's dead, too. Yeah,
1: all of them. Just uh, yeah, dead. all
0: except Ned. And he had a lot to do with killing Arthur. So
1: that's messed up. Everything just falls apart. Ashara's life... I almost had a Shaya again. <laughs> Just, just in tatters, and just so many negative things, and you know, I guess you can kind of see why she might have killed herself. Uh, we, we don't know which event mattered more to her, but that's a, that's a lot of things to, to pull from. Yeah. But another big question remains from all of this: Why does Barristan even think about her at all? It's not a casual mention. He thinks of her a lot. She couldn't possibly have a role to play, right? What could her memory mean? Let's talk about her death question mark is, uh, death dot 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 question mark? yeah conflicting reports again it's the theme of her isn't it who she loved who fathered her child is her child alive now is she alive
2: my father was sir arthur's elder brother lady ashara was my aunt i never knew her though she threw herself into the sea from atop the palestone sword before
1: i was born that's edric dane talking now contrast this to cersei and ned here's the time that cersei brought ashara dane up to his face she threw herself into the sea, I'm told. Why was that? For the brother you slew or the
0: child you
1: stole? To add to those possibilities, the death of her brother at the hands of Edard, and because she lost her stillborn child, and really that one should replace the child you stole, since we're not here to challenge R plus L equals J today. But we're not even we're not gonna try to get too close to the Tower of Joy either. Uh-huh. Obviously we've had to stay on the fringes of it because yes. these characters are so involved. Still uh-huh. Three distinct possibilities, at the least, for what happened there between uh, with with Ashara and Edard.
0: Yeah, and perhaps we're just falling into a trap by trying to pick just one of those things. They're all crushing blows, and it's really likely just the confluence of tragedies that caused her grief to be such that she would take her own life, not just one of them in particular. Yeah. Barristan himself isn't sure which it is, though he does favor the lost child.
2: But Ashara's daughter had been stillborn. And his fair lady had thrown herself from a tower soon after, mad with grief for the child she had lost, and perhaps for the man who had dishonored her at Harren Hall as well.
1: But remember what we said about the timing of the child's death. It had been a while. But Arthur's death and at Ned and Howland's hands, or something, was recent. That was the most recent of the things.
0: Yeah, now given all that confusion and the convenience of that style of death, yeah. that no one saw the body, <laughs> so there are theories that she's still alive and these date back to 1996 now we are going to address a major one this one of course
1: yeah. not from 1996 yeah, no, no, but no, it is one of the most famous yeah it is now
0: is ashara septa
1: now i don't think so frankly there's a lot of things that really really eliminate her one of them is that she's frankly too old tyrion thinks of her as well over 40 septa for that is but even our highest guesses which George R. R. Martin confirms with his own statement about how old she'd be, were she alive, which is in her 30s, is confirmed. Mm-hmm. So, she's, Ashara is too young to be simple of And if yeah. you need more proof, there's the eyes. She had yeah. haunting violet eyes. Unmistakable. Standout. Tyrion was obsessed with her. He stared mm-hmm. at her body. She watched her swim. He was, of, like, lusting over her. You cannot tell me he missed her eye color, mm-hmm. especially when he noticed John Connington's. He noticed Young Griff's, he noticed Halden's, he noticed his eye (laughs) color and everybody. So, if, that just doesn't, yeah, I don't think so.
0: Yeah, so, but if she is more somehow, or or alive somewhere else, then Barristan is a candidate for the treason for love all of a sudden. Assuming that she's with Young Griff, or at least not on Danny's side. Consider just how Barristan still feels about her, and how she might have felt about him.
2: He would never know. But of all his failures, none haunted Barristan Selmay so much as that.
0: If the reason that Martin wrote her into his memories is that she's still alive, well, it probably won't be a happy ending. (laughs) She's just too tragic of a figure, and she seems to represent conflict without intending to in any way.
1: Yeah, we did a Twitter poll, in fact, on whether people believe that any of the Danes are still alive. 37% 37% out of about 500 responders believe that Ashara Dane is alive. Only about 12% people think Arthur is alive. So yeah. Ashara is still alive in the minds of many. Personally, I don't think either of them were alive, although I did have some hopes for that before Dance with Dragons came out. The fact mm-hmm. that neither of them have turned up with young Griff or yeah. in his, you know, anywhere around there, that, for me, was the end. They're not alive. To me, that was it for them. They—they they, they, If they weren't going to turn up there, they're not going to turn up at all but I'd love to be wrong.
0: Yeah, that, I feel the <laughs> same way. There's hardly any theories that I am 100% like, no, we're right and you're wrong. I would love for Ashara to still be alive and come around. I just don't think so.
1: Yeah, it's just because you have one letter name different than her, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's <laughs> why I want to be a big <laughs> Shout out to our History of Westeros Patreon sellsword captains, Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide. Resistance is futile. And Garion Pike, A.K.A. the Land Squid, wielder of the Valerian Arach Grave Embrace, Captain of the Iron Wave. Iron's kiss is eternal. <laughs> Part four: The current Danes of Starfall. They may have had their power reduced after Robert's Rebellion. Having fought for Ares, as best as we can tell, they certainly were on the Dornish side. It was costly enough. Arthur was gone, so was Shara. Their unnamed elder brother, who
0: was lord at the end of Rebellion, but he's dead now too. But their sister remains. She is...
1: Elyria Dane.
0: We know too little about her, unfortunately. We don't know what she looks like or how old she is, but we do have some basis for narrowing, narrowing it down. She was betrothed to Lord Beric Dondarian since 294, four years before the start of the Game of Thrones.
1: So we would guess that Illyria should be around Beric's age, but probably younger given the long betrothal. Long waits like that are generally due to age. Mm -hmm. Beric was about 21 when he left to hunt Sir Gregor in Game of Thrones, so he obviously wasn't too young.
0: Yeah, either way, she she appears to be quite a bit younger than Arthur and Ashara. This implies the possibility that Illyria has a different mother than those two, making them half-siblings.
1: There's also a theory that she's Ashara's daughter, passed off as Lord Danes so that she'll be legitimate. This may sound far-fetched, And it might be, but the motivation for this would be a shortage of Dane heirs, which we can semi-confirm based on what we know. And it's not, it wouldn't be some convoluted plot to conceal the girl's true identity for major plot purposes.
0: Yeah, if you consider that the alternative might be Starfall passing to Darkstar, well, (laughs) perhaps there's additional motivation.
1: Yeah, it's entirely possible he was in line to inherit somehow. But one of the main reasons for Ashara's suicide is the loss of her child. So if you take that away, she's instead abandoning her child, so that's harder to fit. Now, with Beric dead, you'd think she'd find a new husband. But generally, the the Lord makes that call. And that's 13-year-old Edric up next. Maybe he's not ready to marry off his aunt. Frankly, he doesn't seem like the type to force marriage on someone, but perhaps he'll rise to the occasion. I see what I did there. (sighs) Edric Dane, Lord of Starfall. Early life. His father had him after the rebellion, which implies that his father was not a young man at the time. He may have had an elder brother or sister or two that died, leaving him as the heir. As far as we know, he has no younger siblings. As far as we know, he is the only child, but that doesn't mean there were others who died before or after him. Now, in a surprising twist, in A Storm of Swords, we learn he was Milk Brothers with Jon Snow, though their age gap means they weren't with the wet nurse, Wyla, together. Mm-hmm. About three or four years apart from them. Ned Stark brought home a wet nurse with Jon, which tells us he most likely found a new one after Wyla, which tells us... In turn, he probably didn't want at telling stories in Winterfell. But mm-hmm. might she be alive to tell stories at Starfall? If that's the case, then why would they keep her on at Starfall? That seems yeah. like the same problem.
0: Yeah, big question, no answer. <laughs> the information is in conflict because it is supposed to be. Lies and or rumor are what we're dealing with, and it's all aligned with what we just saw in Ashara, Our Lady of Conflicting Stories.
1: <laughs> her new title. We can't really expect Edric to know the truth by the way. He's too young and knows what he knows from Illyria, who's also probably too young. Or if it was some sort of family secret, she wouldn't have told Edric when he was that young. You don't go telling children your big family secrets. You wait till they're older.
0: <laughs> yeah. His Aunt Illyria's marriage formed the connection between these two families that led to Edric being Lord Beric's page, then Squire. This happened when Edric was around seven, and this it's highly likely that his father made these arrangements, yeah. meaning the lordship passed Edric sometime in the last four years. As Lord of Starfall, he was unlike most squires and could have easily left Lord Berwick, but he didn't. This and other reasons show a very strong connection between those two.
1: As an aside, they should both be thanking King Daron the Good for this and most other friendships between Dornish and Archer <laughs> lords that wouldn't have been possible as recently as 100 years prior. <laughs> <laughs> Now, here's a really interesting tidbit regarding Edric. We brought this up at the beginning. If you consider the five-year gap, which to be clear, George had originally planned a five-year gap that he would deal with in flashbacks. This would have been after a Storm of Swords. He was going to have this gap between the Storm of Swords and what was originally planned to be a Dance with Dragons. He just realized that wouldn't work and had to rewrite basically a lot of things that he had planned. Consider that Edric Dane would have been around the same age as, say, Arthur or a lot of people when they're up and comers as a late teenager, yeah. which would have made him the perfect age to be sword of the morning. But now he's only 13. I don't know that it'll work. So that's a little, little topic in and of itself. It's another meta topic.
3: Uh-huh.
1: George R. R. Martin, however, has been clear that. These things can happen. Is Being too young isn't necessarily an impediment.
0: Yes. He said this. This is from uh, Suspect Martin in 2005. If you want to Google it, you can Google this. If a 12-year-old has to conquer the world, then so be it.
1: And he's given us examples of young characters here and there very subtly to show that this is not unprecedented for a 13, 14-year-old to be a badass. Jamie, of course, is a good example. <laughs> Damon Blackfire. But, but more recently, Josmin Peckledon. Does that name mean anything to you? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but he's a 14, 13 year old dude who killed two knights and captured two others at the Battle of Blackwater and was uh, noted for it. Damon Lannister, Jamie's cousin, exclaims, this, this kid did that. Something along those lines. He doesn't even have a mustache yet. So, it's possible that despite this age change, well, not age change, but lack of growth that Edric would have had, he could still be the Sword of the Morning, but maybe not. That might, in fact, be why Darkstar was added. We'll talk about him in a minute. There's another small hint that Ned might be more skilled than he seems. He might be an up-and-comer. And then he mentions to Arya that he won a writing competition, writing at rings. So there's a little little hint there that he might be have greatness in him and we just haven't seen it yet. The nickname Ned, though, that's a really big one. This is a huge clue and it's confusing. (laughs) It's more of a confusing clue than it, you know, it almost confuses things more than it clears things up. But to me, it feels like proof that Edric's father respected, perhaps even liked, Eddard Stark, which is weird because Eddard Stark killed his brother, Arthur, and may have contributed to the sadness that caused Ashara to kill herself and may have given her a bastard or, or his brother brandon did that so arthur and ashara were this lord dane's brother and sister he's not going to like ned under the <laughs> given what we've just said so something weird is going on something we don't know something big we don't know the bottom line is people don't go around giving their son the same nickname as someone they hate the same nickname as someone who killed a famous member of their family or two <laughs> so if he blames him for ashara too i mean there's just now, Edric Dane has a little something in common with uh-huh. Ned himself, with his namesake. He saw him at the Tournament of the Hand and was too shy to go speak to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cute. So let's talk about his time as squire to the Lightning Lord, as a bit older. Uh, his, his time with Arya gives a, a little good insight into his character. He's a nice guy. He's a humble kid. Given Lord Berwick's influence, it's no surprise he shows signs of being a good person. Lord Berwick was a good dude. Although he is shy, as we said. He was, a, he was brave on the battlefield. Maybe a little like Podrick without the speech impediment. And from a way cooler house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Pain and (laughs) gain.
1: I didn't think of it that (laughs) way. Pain and (laughs) gain.
0: It's a bit funny to note that Edric was an outlaw for a time. The nephew of the man who put down the Kingswood Brotherhood, another famous outlaw man, is an outlaw. <laughs>
1: <Huh>? <laughs> we talked about how Arthur would be ashamed of him, himself knighting Jamie. What about this? His own family going to join the outlaws. Like, <laughs> you're, you're doing
0: the right thing, Lord Rick. <laughs> I think he see.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, he defended Lord Beric's body from harm after he was killed the first time, pulling him from the water, and continued to squire for Unbarak after he was raised. He learned to rough it. Living like an outlaw it means giving up on most comforts, living under hills, sleeping outdoors, all this sort of stuff. Basically, all the stuff they told Gendry before he joined, them, like, there's no glory to be one here. And mm-hmm. that, he's similar to Aegon the Sixth, more young Griff, if you prefer, or mm-hmm. and Aegon the Fifth, yeah. for that matter, whose mother was a Dane. Mm-hmm. FYI, a little little distant connection there. Yeah. Let's talk about Edric's future.
0: Yes, Edric is no man of stone hearts. His, his loyalty is to Lord Beric, nor is he truly an outlaw. Again. That was loyalty to Beric, not to the Brotherhood Without Banners. Will he be loyal to Beric's newfound faith, though? He did see his master raised over and over and over again, <laughs> but on the other hand, Thoros didn't go with Edric. Yeah. But some of the other members of the Brotherhood did. Angai the Archer, for instance.
1: Yeah, we think he went with him. That's not hundred percent yeah. but we were. it's a good guess, because Angai wasn't with the others, and where else would he go? Now bringing his outlaw friends is one thing, but a bigger question is will he bring relore to Starfall? This is juicy. Will he look at the legends of Azore hire read about Lightbringer, look at Dawn and go, mm-hmm. "Hmm. <laughs> hmm. This could go badly. Or who knows, it could go well. It could be awesome. It could be yeah. epic." If, according to that old blurb we discussed at the beginning of this episode, events culminate at Starfall. Excuse
0: you, Starfell.
1: Starfell. <laughs> Yes, right. Then Edric could be in the center of it. With Anga? With Anga, yeah. <laughs> now, with those two ideas put together, combine these two concepts. Edric Dane is a believer in Rallor. gets plenty of reason to think that might be true. He might even like Stannis, where he doesn't, he's not a fervent worshiper of R'hllor, but he recognizes the power is real. He's seen it firsthand, he's a lot like Stannis has. Now, can contrast that, compare that to Danny's potential arrival in Westeros. The high priest of the Red Temple, the head of the Relor religion, basically, the Nero, has been preaching openly and loudly that Daenerys Targaryen is the savior, that she is Azor Ahai. What if Edric gets wind of that? If he believes in the power of the Red God, having seen it, and believes that Danny is the savior of that religion, then Danny could have a fine friend in young Lord Edric Dane of Starfall. <laughs> And she might not have many friends at all in Dorne if she's blamed for Quentin's death, Mm -hmm. which is probably going to happen. The rumor of Quentin's death is probably going to precede her explanation for how it was his own damn fault. Uh (laughs) So that could be very valuable. Starfall could be a great place for her to land ships, even dragons. It's an island, after all. She might be able to make landfall in Dorne without a lot of people even realizing she's there yet.
0: That's a good place to go to the Reach or Dorne.
1: That's right. It's very sneaky. Now, but what if Edric isn't able to make his way back to Starfall? We don't know that he's even gotten there yet. It's not an easy journey, and the realm is at a war. And he might even be considered a fugitive. He if, he, if people know that he was fighting for Lord Beric, you know, he was one of the outlaws. That that doesn't put him in good standing with the Iron Throne. Yet another reason to side with Danny, yeah. by the way, <laughs> because the Lannisters him. don't like him. Yeah. Of course, he could also side with. with Young Griff, slash Aegon VI, for similar mm-hmm. reasons. Yeah, yeah, or
0: Gendry, if, if people ever, you know, that's a theory. That's it's true. Of course, about Gendry, and Edric has experience with Gendry.
1: One thing we know, though, is that Edric hates the Lannisters, them having been responsible for killing his lord, his, his lord Beric, mm-hmm. many times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, hmm, yeah. So that's very interesting. The potential for Edric is really cool. Can't wait to see what happens with that. And we'll mm-hmm. just have to wait, though, right? So let's move on, but first from Amazon, great place to do shopping, both New Year's or holiday shopping. Night of the Seven Kingdoms, of course, great book. The art is well worth the purchase by it's itself. A, it's a
0: fully illustrated with uh, you know some some odd hundred illustrations all throughout it. It's got all three Duncan egg novellas. Uh, yeah, I definitely highly recommend picking that up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Also, the 2016 calendar. It's not 2016 yet. Not yeah. too late to pick up that one. It was really beautiful. Yeah. And the it's minutes. The wave. Yeah. Yep. And mm-hmm. of course, if you don't have the world of ice and fire yet, what are you waiting for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All these things are available through historyofwesteros.com. Go to our site. Any of the links on the right will take you. Well, most of the links on the right will take you to Amazon. The ones that do any shopping you do. After you've clicked on that link, no matter where you go within Amazon, it will be credited to us. It'll help the show out a little bit.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: if you are so inclined, do your shopping through Amazon. Go to historywestress.com. Simple as that. Part five The Sword of the Evening.
0: Last, but first in valor, I give you Sir Gerald Dane, a knight of Starfall.
1: Oops. Starfall, that's an actual quote, but he is the Knight of High Hermitage, a cadet branch of House Dane. He is so very Dane, though, just in opposite ways to the others we've
2: seen. My house goes back ten thousand years, until the dawn of days, he complained. Why is it that my cousin is the only Dane that anyone remembers?
1: He he couldn't resist punning there, right? Until the dawn of days, yeah. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah good one, Darkstar. We see what you yeah. did there.
0: Another that could be remembered is King Vorian Dane, the Sword of the Evening, a character added to our knowledge base in the world of Ice and Fire. I'm going to use it to support a theory that he's a bit of a parallel to our own Sarah Gerald.
1: Yeah, it's sneaky that that title, Sword of the Evening, was just now brought mm-hmm. into our... whatever. Lexicon? <laughs> Lexicon, sure. Mm-hmm. Very recently. So I think that might be a hint, a meta clue of sorts. <laughs> King Vorian was defeated by Nymeria, so perhaps it doesn't bode well for Darkstar either. <laughs> but first, let's, as usual, let's look at his background and such.
0: This is a segment we're going to call Little Darkstar. And Dark in, a per- Star. in a perfect world, as I said that, there'd be little cute music that would play, and a tiny Darkstar montage would go on, a la Little Audrey, which is a cartoon from the 50s. Hopefully those of you who have never seen it can still picture my Little Dark Star TV show just as clearly and vividly as I can. (laughs) Anyways, to actually get into what Little Dark Star was up to, instead of my amazing television ideas, he is 26 (laughs) to 29 years old now, so he was likely around 10 to 14 years old during the Rebellion and when Arthur died. There's a good chance that he was a squire somewhere. He may have seen some action, maybe even at the Trident.
1: So, the losing side. (laughs) But too young to have been a knight. How about the possibility he was Sir Arthur's squire? Mm, That's possible. If so, he could have insight into quite a lot, right? He would have been privy to some interesting conversations. His castle also just happens to be Mm -hmm. in between Starfall and the Tower of Joy. Could there be a stop-off by Mm -hmm. anyone? Yeah, little
0: Gerald could be privy to some major secrets.
1: Major secrets. We wonder when he became Knight of High Hermitage. Perhaps his own father died during the Rebellion or during Greyjoy's Rebellion. Which Sir Gerald himself is old enough to have fought into, though. It's not likely since Dorne wasn't on good good terms yeah. with King Robert. Um, but yeah. Gerald himself could have gone because he's a guy that cares about his reputation. Yeah. And he doesn't care what the rest of Dorne thinks. Yeah.
0: Gerald has to have gotten his reputation for fighting somewhere, or if yeah. not there, or somewhere else.
1: Maybe he was just picking fights, but still. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that, yeah. see? We're going to fight him. <laughs> <laughs> we see him drinking lemon water instead of wine. Perhaps a habit he picked up while young, abstaining from alcohol, makes him seem just a little bit more dangerous. I agree. Yeah. A little more who, focused. All
0: people who don't drink alcohol are extremely dangerous.
1: That, wait, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk about his appearance and skill. George R. R. Martin once pointed out that violet eyes just happen. They don't, they don't, they occur often in the Danes, but that doesn't mean they're related to the Valyrians. The topic we'll get into far more in part two. In fact, he pretty much outright says, They're not related to the Valyrians, but that doesn't mean they have some sort of common ancestor. But that's a topic for part two. Right now, we're just going to talk about his looks to show that this outstandingness is a device to make him memorable and to seem important.
0: Yes. He is highborn enough to make a worthy consort, she thought. Father would question my good sense, but our children would be as beautiful as dragonlords. If there was a handsomer man in Dorne, she did not know him. Sir Gerald Dane had an aquiline nose, high cheekbones, a strong jaw. He kept his face clean-shaven, but his thick hair fell to his collar like a silver glacier, divided by a streak of midnight black. He has a cruel mouth, though, and a crueler tongue. His eyes seemed black as he sat outlined against the dying sun, sharpening his steel, but she had looked at them from a closer vantage, and she knew that they were purple. Dark purple. Dark
1: and angry. She looked very close having slept with him <laughs> <laughs> Doran considers him, considers him the most dangerous man in Dorne. He himself feels that a fight between him and Sir Aris Oakheart would be of no particular concern. That's partly arrogance, but also partly skill. His reputation with the sword is a key reason why Arianne included him in her conspiracy, so it's not just his own opinion. <laughs> so he's unreal handsome, literally. Extremely good with the sword, lacking in compunction... Highborn. These mm-hmm. are all major considerations as to Doran's judgment of him. His reputation isn't so great in general as far as being a good guy, although his dangerous part is, is pretty widely known, I suppose. But the Prince of Doran's opinion is the most interesting. He knows the most, and his decisions particularly are interesting to us. So we'll focus on that. So now we bring you not the most interesting man in the world, but the most dangerous man in Doran.
3: <laughs>
1: he speaks Russian in French. <laughs>
3: Uh, the main
1: reason seems to be that he could, that what he could do with all that charisma and aggression and desire for glory. Not just that he's nearly started a war with the Iron Throne by cutting off Marcella's ear, but that he could be a spark to ignite Dorne.
0: Yeah, you know, I have to wonder if Oberyn was the most dangerous man in Dorne prior to Yeah,
1: this. he <laughs> might have been. Yeah, might have been. <laughs> he almost started a war. Too. Yeah, exactly. He's <laughs>
0: able to do that, uh, charismatic and all that. Dorne was angry and barely contained not long ago after the death of the Red Viper. Darkstar could pretty easily probably win supporters by being the voice of revenge. You wonder if he could even win over Obara.
1: Surely not Hotah. certainly not Balon Swan, but is Obara's oath enough?
0: Yeah, I mean, not long, enough, not long ago she was demanding control of a host so that she could sack Oldtown and insulting Prince Doran to his face. I certainly do hope the Sand Snakes will keep their oaths, though, but...
3: Yeah, if
1: not, if Obara doesn't join Darkstar, maybe she gets killed by him or something mm. like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't I don't feel great about their chances. I think uh, Darkstar's arc is going to go longer. Now, Doran has been very concerned with how much his people want revenge and blood. And their current somewhat subdued state may be easy enough to rouse. The right trigger may be all they need. With... Young Griff slash Aegon Sixth in the mix, things get a little extra complicated. Would he not look even more like Rhaegar's son with a Dane at his side? As Rhaegar had the Sword of the Morning, Aegon could have the Sword of the Evening.
0: Yeah, and could he even acquire Dawn?
1: Surely he does not qualify as worthy, as we're told a Dane needs to be to wield Dawn, but what would stop him from just taking it? <laughs> Especially if Edric Dane isn't even at Starfall. He could just <laughs> show up and be like, yeah, Edric's dead. I'm the Lord of Starfall now. You let me in. And he just makes with the sword, just wow. runs off with it. Who's gonna stop him? Yeah. Obviously you'd have to get inside Starfall somehow, so I'm just guessing at how that could happen, but that's yeah. not that surely isn't that much of an obstacle for an actual Dane.
0: Yeah. But if we're suggesting that Edric might be too young to bring Dawn into the story, someone has to Martin added Darkstar a bit late in the game for a reason. He didn't have to make Gerald a Dane. The guy who cut off Marcella's ear could have been an other or a Blackmon or several other houses would fit. It could be that he wanted to make sure that he had an adult Dane in the story and so a cadet branch was created. But isn't it possible that like, couldn't Darkstar just as easily have been a cousin of Edric's and still from Starfall? Why even create the cadet branch?
1: Yeah, well, I guess then he wouldn't have his own castle. Mm. And that seems to be important. One of the reasons Ariane valued him as part of her conspiracy was because they would have a place to go. Who was the only one that actually had a castle out of the group. So, we'll take a closer look at High Hermitage in the next episode. But for now, we will point out that it is hard to get to. Ariane, at the time when she's in captivity, figures that... He would have fled Dorn, But her father says at High Hermitage, his castle is beyond their reach. Not only implying that it's a tough castle, but that he didn't actually flee. Is he sure, though? Was that really his plan? Kill Marcella, then go hide in his castle? I don't, I just don't think so. Let's suggest that. While a fugitive in the eyes of many, he might be doing exactly what many others want him to do or to do themselves. Just look at all the possible allies he might have amongst those who refused to drink to the king, even with Balon Swan and Doran Martell present.
2: Hotah paid more note to those who did not drink. Sir Damon Sand, Lord Tremend Gargalan, the Fowler twins, Dagos Manwoody, the Ullers of the Hellholt, the wiles of the Boneway. If there's trouble, it could start with one of them. Dorne was an angry and divided land, and Prince Doran's hold on it was not as firm as it might be. Many of his own lords had thought him weak and would have welcomed open war with the Lannisters and the boy king on the Iron Throne.
1: You know what's funny? He actually reminds me a lot of (laughs) Dario. They're both outlandishly handsome, cheesy, badass killers. If Darkstar does flee Dorne... Or if you know Danny comes to him somehow, how might a meeting between those two go? <laughs> yeah,
0: he's—I think he's definitely her type. I can picture her meeting him and getting stars in her oh, eyes. No, I see the future. She'd be like, "Oh, he's so dreamy and dark and brooding." Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I hope not, but it could, yeah. could definitely it happen.
0: He's definitely her type. She's just fourteen-year-old girl,
1: and she might want to Dane at her side for yeah. similar reasons as Egg on the Six to make people think of Rhaegar. I mean, there's no doubt she's and She has dragons, but still. Running people of Rhaegar is a good thing, is a political move. It's important for Aegon the Sixth to do that kind of thing. For Danny it would help. It's probably not import- as important for Danny, but it would help both of them.
0: Yeah, and not only that, if you're gonna have children with someone, someone who looks pretty Valyrian is a pretty yeah. great choice. It really plus, is.
1: Plus these people like Aegon the Sixth and Danny, they may not have heard Darkstar's reputation. Darkstar's yeah. reputation is largely confined to Doran. Cersei hadn't heard of him, for example. Yeah. Yeah. When when told what happened, she's like, "This Gerald Dane cut Marcel's ear off." She's like, "Who?" <laughs> so that might help him get in, you know, with some new people before they find out that he's not the kind of guy you want to have on your team. <laughs> so that's really interesting. And looking at it from all these perspectives and seeing so many possibilities, it only makes me more confident that he's going to have a big impact going forward. So watch out for Darkstar. He is not a minor character. I do not think that he his star will fade anytime soon. We have just punned way too much today. All right, folks, this is our outro where we wrap up things a bit and talk about things from a higher level. From a literary standpoint, it's always important to note literary themes. The Danes have a lot of different things associated with them. We've talked about the extremes, the fact that you have Arthur and Darkstar, these, like, opposite, similar, kind of inverted versions lot of, of each A of dichotomies. Other. Yeah, dichotomies. You have duty and devotion, doomed by it, rather. Oh. This is how it probably sadness and sorrow. And these opposite things.
0: And mysteries.
1: Lots of mysteries. <laughs> we have them tied to some of the biggest mysteries, both in the past and going forward. The way that they can interact with the major players in the current story, such as Daenerys and Aegon VI. Possibly some of the other factions, but those are the two that we most associate them with. Mm-hmm. And we haven't even begun to touch on the bigger ancient mysteries. We have hardly at all talked about the Sword of the Morning or Dawn or why they look the way they do. We've talked about their looks a little bit, but we haven't talked about why. We have yeah. some great theories on we that. Talk
0: about the Long Night. Or... We haven't
1: talked about the Long Night. We haven't right. talked about the theories on Lightbringer. Is, is the Sword of the Morning just? Yeah. An office to watch over the sword until it's needed again. Yeah, We've got a so, lot of ideas on that. Yeah,
0: definitely keep out. Keep looking out for the part two, which is going to go into all those ties to the ancient past. Yep, uh, that's going to be fun
1: yeah, in the meantime. Yeah, you know. we're
0: going to talk about, yeah, Dawn. I mean, you can always already see the enormous potential that the Danes have with regards to the rest of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's going to be really interesting stuff in part two. Yes. Hopefully, this was already interesting. Yeah.
1: And so send us uh, in between. You can certainly send us some questions if you have things that we didn't cover. If you have. Other topics you want to make sure that we get in there, feel mm-hmm. free to let us know. Westeros at gmail.com or yeah. send us a message on Patreon if you're signed up for Patreon or tweet at us at at Westeros History. Mm-hmm. The Twitter polls that we've been doing lately mm-hmm. are really fun. That's a new feature they've yeah. added on Twitter. They run for a, a day and it's been fun for increasing our engagement with folks and getting people's feedback and what, mm-hmm. what they know and what they care about. That's why we knew that 37% of... of People who responded think Ashara Dane is alive, which is kind of a high number, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, another interesting thing we've been doing is, uh, if you look at our Facebook page, uh, we've posted a little table of contents, a preview of this episode. Um, and we'll be doing that for part two of the Dane. So this is a good reason for you to like our Facebook page. If you haven't, we'll be posting just slight previews of the episodes from That's time right. to
1: time. Slight like teasers, get hype type stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, Despite the fact that the Danes are exactly what we don't like about other series that rely too much on fantasy stereotypes, the black-white nature of the characters of their house stand out against the general gray that we see almost everywhere else. Yet despite them lacking the traits that draw us to the story in the first place, they're about as popular as a non-great house can be.
0: Yeah, we love them, too. Yeah, we do,
1: we do. Uh, these I'm critical in a few yeah. spots, but still, I'm only critical to show that despite the critical... Despite the criticisms, I still love them. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a matter that they stand so strongly despite these things. And in fact, I think it's interesting the fact that they're... If George overdid it, if there were lots of fantasy stereotype houses around, yeah. the names would be boring. But the okay. fact that they're so unique in the setting makes them even cooler.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
1: we do love them. But we love these real people even more. First Lord Cash Craig, the black pupil and hand of the king. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Blood and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge the Lord Borealis the Light of the North and Warden of the North. Frontier, Lord James Knox of the Pokerboard, Hammer of the Dornish Session and Warden of the South. Our Small Council, Lord James Inkblade the Scholar Knight, Master of Whispers. Grand Maester Itai wears the Jeweled Collar of Many Metals. Lord Robert Jacobs is our Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever of our Master of Laws, Lord James Tuttle of our Master of Ships, Lady Dyrla is of Castle Naki's the Alpha Patriot, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains, and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt, who's Lord of the Castle Ganges, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Lord Damien Sand, the Resilient, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel, Spear, Swan Song, Mary Meg, Lady of the Bloody Stepstones, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadport. Alicia, everlasting of the Greenblood, Lady of Desert Roads; Jeffrey the Unflinching, Lord of Sand Lake; Lord Grey Bay of the Queen City; and Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate, Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, round out our list of Lordly Lords. Also, thanks to History of Westeros Lord Commander Shepard and Lord Commander George the Golden of the History of Westeros. Nice watch. Also, King's Justice Sir Troy, the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade, Blade Fate. King is our King's Justice.
0: Those are awesome. Great names and titles.
1: Fun stuff. If you want a title like that of your own, check us out on patreon.com slash history of Westeros. Now for some fun stuff, a little trivia, some random tidbits that didn't fit in the episode either because they're too outside the scope of things or just because it's kind of (sighs)
0: silly.
1: First of all, There's a sci-fi cult classic film called Dark Star from 1974.
0: Dark Space Star. Dark
1: Space Star still, but yeah. It was one of those movies that was written to be entirely serious, partly by John Carpenter, in fact, but was actually so over the top that it turned into a cult classic for being hilarious. Accidentally hilarious. (laughs) They wanted to make a dark sci-fi thriller, but instead got a dark comedy. That is what Dark Star the character is like, though. George R. R. Martin is doing it ironically, not accidentally, uh, or, well, I don't know if it's ironically, but it's not accidental. Yeah. Lines like, I was weaned on venom, Dalt. Any viper that takes a bite of me will rue it.
0: Okay, they're macho, man. Yeah,
1: it's kind of yeah. silly, right? But it's on it's on purpose, I tell you. It's on purpose. <laughs> so here's another funny one Arthur Dane as Camaris. I, t- I mentioned a while back that I used to be one of those people that thought Arthur Dane was alive. I posted on the forums, the Westeros.org forums, as far back as no 2003. 2004, maybe, that I thought Arthur Dane was alive. Now, I don't think he's alive anymore, partly because I've changed my mind on some things. I've thought it through more. But really, it's because he hasn't shown up yet. If he, if he showed up, if he was going to show up, it would have been with young Griff or something like that. Like, that's the time for him to show up. But the reason I thought he was alive in the first place wasn't just because we didn't see the body or because it's possible. It's because of the character he's borrowed from. I think I've talked about this before, but it was, in a side note, And it it wasn't in a Dane episode, for sure. This is where it belongs. Here's some spoilers from another series. The series Memory, Star and Thorn, a.k.a. the Dragonbone Chair. Okay. In that series, there was a knight. He was the greatest knight of his age. He was honorable and incredible. And he fought with a white sword made from a fallen star. (laughs) (laughs) And he vanished kind of mysteriously. And he was kind of a figure from any ancient past. And it turned out he was alive in this story. He actually, you know, had like amnesia and had gotten lost, and eventually figured out who he was and became a big part of the story. That was part of why I thought he was still alive because it's like, oh, he's using that character in that storyline. But no, George just borrowed these external details and made yeah. an entirely different character. He just he just liked that idea. It was kind of an homage to Tad Williams, as that author? So yeah, Chardin's a little more difficult. She might still be alive, I guess. A lot of you guys believe so, anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another little tidbit. At the Tower of Joy, it was not Dawn versus Ice. That sounds really cool and epic. The, the epic duel of two-handed swords, Dawn versus Ice, the dark greatsword versus the light. Nope, that didn't happen.
3: <laughs> George
1: has specifically said, fairly recently, if not longer ago, that Ice was too large to fight with. It's just a ceremonial blade, way too big, way too un- you know, cumbersome, etc. cumbersome, Maybe it was as
0: light as Dawn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, that, unfortunately, didn't happen. Oh, well. Mm-hmm. Now, some other funny Twitter polls we did.
3: Mm-hmm. We
1: had another one on who is your favorite, Dane. 475 people voted. Mm-hmm. 44% Arthur. Shocking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 20, but Ashara and Darkstar were tied. 21% each. Edric, Dane, came in at 14%. So He's sad. my favorite. It was
0: my vote. Yeah. Okay. I was, hmm. Did you vote in that one? Yourself?
1: I did. Did I voted with my personal account. For Edric, Edric, and and
0: both of us voted for Edric, and he was still (laughs) only 14%. I'm so disappointed (laughs) in all of you. How can you not like this cute, little, nice, sweet boy?
1: (laughs) Another poll that we did was to who would wield Dawn eventually, and my pick was Darkstar. I actually don't have the, the numbers in front of us here for this episode, but a lot of people suggested that it was somebody else, that's somebody we don't know yet. And then Jon Snow is another possible and somewhat popular option. So, the idea that Jon Snow could wield Dawn is something we'll touch on a bit more in we, we, You had a
0: pretty good pun for that, one.
1: Oh, on. yeah! Okay, so what happens if Jon Snow takes Longclaw and Dawn at the same time? What does he do with that? Does he, com- does he take the silvered hilt of Longclaw combined... With Dawn and Long Claw and make Long Dawn Silver? Why did you make me say that?
0: (laughs) I love it. I think it's really good. I I cracked me up. I think we'll be
1: getting hate mail for that one. (laughs) 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 So, folks, that is our episode for today. We'll be back with another episode approximately this length, perhaps slightly longer. I doubt it will be shorter.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: With our special guest, David Beers, a.k.a. Lucifer Means Lightbringer. We've got a a lot of fun stuff.
0: For all of his quotes throughout the episode. Great work Uh,
1: there, David. Thank you very much. You'll be hearing his voice uh, more uh, speaking on his own opinions rather than just uh, reading quotes for us. So we'll get to see what that's all about. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. We appreciate the support. And as this episode is recording at the end of 2015, I want to say thanks to everybody for helping us have a successful 2015. We look forward to 2016. We look forward to starting as East versus Chapter. We look forward to season six for those of you who are sticking with the TV show. And we really look forward to the Winds of winter. Hopefully that's in the part of 2016. And we really as well.
0: look forward to, we're going to a few cons next year. That's right. That George will be at, um, Mysticon in February, which is in Roanoke, Virginia. And then we're going to, uh, Balticon, obviously in Baltimore, Maryland. Right. And Balticon will have, a Bunch of the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire People, Radio Westeros. Yeah, you have
1: voice flying in from England, folks. Yeah,
0: you guys got to make that one. That's in May. You got plenty of time yeah. to plan for that if you're interested. If you live
1: in the Maryland, Baltimore area, you have no excuse. If yeah. you don't, you have plenty of time to figure out a way to get there. You could meet us, all of us in person. George yeah. will be there, too. I mean, come uh, on. This, this is like a Song of Ice and Fire podcaster con, plus yeah. George R. R. Martin. Maybe he'll be doing a reading maybe he'll read from a winter, a chapter we haven't heard yet. Oh. Maybe. To tempt you further, we, we uh-huh. say things like that.
0: So hopefully we'll see you next year.
1: That's right. Now, if you would like to support the show in a different way, you can try out an audible.com subscription, a free trial, 30 days with. No commitment whatsoever. Gets you a one free download. I highly recommend The Knight of the Seven Kingdoms. Again, we recommended it in paper version or Kindle version, but also the audible version is awesome. Harry Lloyd, a.k.a. Viserys Targaryen, is the reader. And that guy's got a great voice. You know he does. You, yeah. He was he was amazing in season one. One of the best parts of season one. Yeah. And that is not the limit of and his talents. Yeah, and
0: there's plenty of Targaryens and not at Seven Kingdoms yeah. for him to have his talents. Him
1: being Aryan Bright is yeah. a little perfect, isn't it? <laughs> so I highly recommend that. Once again, sign up for that through historyofwesteros.com. If you decide not to go through with the subscription, you get to keep the one free download. So mm-hmm. that's no reason not free. To. You just get a free Harry Lloyd reading Night of the Seven Kingdoms. All yeah. you got to do is spend about 10 minutes of clicking and typing. Not even yeah. 10 Not even 10 no, minutes, really. Even. So if that tickles your fancy, check it out. Enjoy it. Tell us what you think. We loved it. Until next time, a reminder that your favorite podcasters and videocasters might not be wearing pants. <laughs>